The family. It's time for the family. If you weren't here last week, I can see I can see you rolling your eyes, but I've just got to tell you, this whole thing about the mafia last week, some people say, man, you got to be insane to try to draw a parallel between the mafia and the kingdom of God. But in fact, it's not so strange, was it? If you think about a system of governments that works in the context of another system of governance, and you talk about the rights and the privileges, the power and the authority. I had one of my precious friends come to me this morning, and she said, you know, our, our struggle with our daughter has been incredible. And she goes, we prayed. I just began to weep. I saw your sermon last week. I began to weep, and we prayed authority over my daughter, and we hadn't even had any connection. She didn't want to talk to us, and she called almost immediately after that, and it was a response to an email, and it was, she goes, it was incredible, the authority that we have in the name of Christ. Uh, don't underestimate the power and the authority. So what did the mob have? Well, they had, you know, all kinds of special rights within even that there were their own rights. They had the Cosa Nostra, right? They had their own thing, our thing. We do the way things we like to do things, our way, and if it's not our way. And then they had, of course, the code of silence and all that. They had their own written laws within the context. And in many ways, we have that with the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, the kingdom of heaven is radically different. I hope you get that by now. Radically different from the mob. No racketeering, prostitution, gambling, uh, hits out on people. We do, in many ways, have hits out on people, but it's so that people might recognize Jesus as the Messiah and give them life. I did want to, before we moved on in Ephesians chapter 2, for those of you who are back, we've been working through the study of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians or the church all over Asia. It's kind of a collective letter. But the last thing that I alluded to last week, but I wanted to go into it in a little bit more depth, what about this thing of protection, right? So we know that if you didn't pay up to the mob, you weren't protected, And so you wanted the protection that they offered, and yet the kingdom very much talks about, often about protection, doesn't it? I mean, you should think about protection, the protection of the kingdom, you know. Um, You'll mount up on wings like eagles when you wait, and God will bring you then into his little little, uh, uh, cleft in the rock. I mean, there's all kinds of language through the Psalms and, and much protection language. And yet, would you agree that Probably many of you are going through things right now. You say, well, where's the protection of God? And I'm going through this physical challenge that I've, I can't imagine this physical challenge that I'm going through. Or, 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 and you can find many ways. I mean, even this week, do you think in the fires that have happened here in Southern California, do you think, or, or that have happened here in California, the lives that have been lost? I think I saw this morning there were upwards of 25 or so people, lives have been lost. Do you think all those were non-Christians and all the Christians' houses were uh, miraculously spared and the non-Christians' houses burns down? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. So what is it? Do we have protection or do we not have protection? I think also about the First Baptist Church of Sutherland, Texas, just not too far, maybe 30 miles outside of San Antonio, Texas. A year ago, last weekend, November 5th, a gunman walked into that church and blew away 26 precious people. The church was maybe only 50, 75 people. And I think back about that, and I go, well, where's the protection of God? Don't you think that? Or a hurricane hits, and you see a church that crumbles to the ground, and then maybe there's a strip joint next door, and it's still standing. What kind, where's God's protection in that? And we began to secretly. We would, we're still going to come to church. We're saying, but deep down, it's going to gnaw at our souls. Where's the protection of God when he calls for protection? 
Uh, One of the things we really have to understand is that when Jesus was in his prayer, in the high high priestly prayer, so if you wouldn't mind turning to John chapter 17 if you have your Bibles, one of the things we need to see this biblically. Does God protect his children? Yes. And in some ways protect from what? I mean, that's what we have to establish here this morning. We've got to realize that protection, we've got to recognize that protection is, we just have a brief stay here on earth, as we'll see a minute in Psalm 139. But in John chapter 17, let's look at verse 11, starting in 11. Jesus speaking, praying to his Father, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. He's talking about his disciples, and he's praying for his disciples. He says, and I've come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Okay, so keep them, protect them. The name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them, protecting them, if you will, in your name which you've given me, and I guarded them. Again, protection language, again. I guarded them, and not one of them perished. In other words, they were protected. But the son of perdition, and obviously he's referring to Judas, by whom the scriptures had already spoken about in Zechariah, hundreds of years in advance of that. So, Zechariah, uh, Judas was not protected, but the others were protected. Well, Judas committed suicide, but did the other ones, did they live to a ripe old age? What, what ripe old age? What is protection? Is it living until 90, 95, 100, 105? What about, what about Stephen who would be stoned right after, you know, just preaching one of the first sermons after Peter and he's stoned to death in Acts chapter 7? What about him? Where's his protection What was Jesus talking about? Was he talking about physical protection? Because these disciples, only one probably survived past to a ripe old age, and that would have been John, and yet he was not protected from being constrained to an island off on the island of Patmos, and we don't know, imprisoned. We didn't know all that he went through, but he, he did live to be much older than the rest. Peter was crucified upside down, and Jesus had it, in fact, prophesied that he would. There's coming a day when you'll be bound and you'll be taken to a place that you don't want to go, Peter. And then Peter turns to the other guy and says, what about them? He goes, don't worry about them. If I want to keep them alive until I come back, what's that to you? You follow me. Peter, you just keep following me. So here's the question. Is it protection? Is it protection for some? Well, I'm going to I'm going to put this out before you. The protection in the kingdom, it's not that God doesn't protect you from certain things in the physical world, but the primary source of protection from God is soul protection. Soul protection. You know, we get, we just so much want the Bible to tell us that everything is going to go perfectly down here, that our lives are always going to be cancer-free, that we're always going to get the promotion. We'll be the one at the office to get the promotion. We'll be the ones that have our houses not burned down. We'll be the ones where our houses are standing after an earthquake. We'll be the ones who always get the best end of the deal. And, and in many times that is sold, and I don't think that's biblical. Jesus was pretty clear. In this life, you will have many tribulations. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, for instance, says, arm yourselves to suffer as Christ suffered. James was clear. Count it as joy when you encounter various trials, not if, but when you, the believers, encounter various trials. So, you know, we look at this often. It's one of the biggest questions in non-believers' minds. You guys claim that your God protects you, and yet, look, you guys are no different than us. And so, in some ways, that's a stumbling block. If we don't get this right theologically, it can be a stumbling block for those who are trying to enter the kingdom and have always struggled with this understanding. Look, you say, well, that's a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. 
Because what matters to God is that you don't perish in the second death, that your soul, because you are an eternal being, do you recognize that you're, you're an eternal being? I mean, that, that alone should stagger some of you, maybe online, someone. You are an eternal being. The Bible nowhere, in my view, supports annihilationism. Some believe in annihilationism. In other words, there will be a day when if you've rejected Christ, even if they're called, you know, follow Jesus, there will be a day that you'll be annihilated. I think the Bible is pretty clear. There's an eternality to who you are. You are a soul, and you will go on beyond the dust of this life. If that's true, how will you think about your life? Will you be so focused on, what, just a few years down here? I mean, really. What do we have down here? Well, I've got to live out my dreams, and I've got to... Look, your dreams should be God's dreams for you. Your life should be so concentrated on the calling that God has in your life. And in that way, your soul will be preserved through faith, as we'll see here in a minute. Ephesians chapter 2, 9 and 10. Now, Psalm 139 is clear about this. There's nothing you can do to extend your life or to shorten it really in an ultimate way. Psalm 139, verse 16, listen to the words here. And again, this is obviously going to bring up questions, and we dealt with these about a month ago, this idea of predestination and free will and choice. If you haven't had a chance, go back and log in at churchattheredoor.com and get some of those teachings because I think it will really help you understand conceptually how we're both predestined, what we've learned, chosen before the foundations of the earth, and yet we're culpable. It's both. You say it can't be both. It is both. They're both thoroughly biblical. Psalm 139, 16, listen to the words of the psalmist. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. God was seeing you in the unformed substance of the earth. Now that, that's crazy. If that's true, that, that's wild. And then he goes on, but not, he's not finished. And in your book were all written, what? The days that were ordained for me, even before what? As yet there wasn't even one of them. We're headed to Israel, some in our body. About 70 of us will be going to Israel here in a couple of weeks. By the way, I think you'll be excited to know. We're going to film one of the services right when we get off the bus the next morning. We're going to go to the seminary, which we're involved with here, uh, Jewish-led seminary there, and we're going to have service there, and they're going to tape it, and your service on the 25th, if all things, excuse me, not the 25th, the 2nd, I believe, your service will be live from Israel, and we'll be broadcasting it back from Israel. Is that kind of cool? That's kind of cool. So if you don't get to go to this tr- on this trip, you'll kind of get to be there a little bit vicariously through the group that's there. So this is going to be exciting, but some people get all freaked out about going to the Middle East, and why why shouldn't they? I mean, we hear a lot of reports. There's some crazy things going on over there, and this is right dead set in the middle of it and surrounded by some not-so-friendly neighbors at various points over the last several thousand years. And yet, when I read this, I go, there's nothing that can... I mean, my days are already written. So whether my days finish in Israel or finish in uh, the the 101 freeway in Los Angeles, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because God's already preordained a set number of days for me. Now, understanding that, by the way, is one of the most liberating things you'll ever understand. Now, I do understand this gets this is challenging. So you're saying if I if I eat right and exercise, I'm not going to live any longer. I'm just saying we still will go forward. Like, of course, I'm going to make health choices today. I'm going to make smart decisions. 
But then I'll look back and go, it doesn't matter, my days were already preordained. And we can't become fatalistic and say, well, I won't exercise or eat right, or I won't, but I'll just live like I want to live because my days are preordained. Again, I know those are hard to balance the two, but both, again, are thoroughly biblical. So you're both culpable, but your days are already chosen for you. I Just grapple with it. It's hard. It's hard. But it's also liberating to know that, hey, when, when my time's up, my time's up. So I have a, a few years down here. Uh, let me tell you something. Those years that are ordained for you are protected in your physical body, but your spiritual composition, your soul in Christ is preserved for all of eternity in the presence of the creator of the universe. There will be a day was the first song. That song was chosen with purpose this morning. We're going to see him face to face. That day is coming. And that should make us pretty joyful community, shouldn't it? I mean, we, could, we should not be able, you know, I, I scoured the internet this last week and I was looking for some interviews done with the Sutherland shooting, the First Baptist Sutherland shooting, and, and I saw a grandfather and I believe he'd lost, I don't remember the exact number, but over five of his own family in the, in the shooting. And they were really laboriously trying to get him to, you know, weep or, you know, be vengeful or something. And it was almost strange, almost eerie the way that he was joyful, joyful. Now, was he celebrating their death? No, he wasn't celebrating their death. He was celebrating their movement into their eternal destiny. And that you could see the interview. It's a secular interviewer, and they were just trying to, you know, who is this guy? How is he? Then you talk about brainwashing. Who, what does this guy think? I mean, and they kept just trying to dig deeper and deeper and deeper, and there was nothing. He said, I have lost no one. They all knew Jesus. I'm celebrating their movement into their time with the creator of the universe. They had an appointed day. He didn't say that, but that, that very foundation, you could tell that was coursing through his DNA. It was the reality that their days were numbered, as are yours, whether you'll live 90 or whether you'll live 25. That's for the Lord to know. How shall then we live? So you do have protection from the family. You got protection the king of kings, for as long as those days have been ordained for you and they were set before the foundations of the earth were spoken into existence. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Okay, so let's press on. Let's move into Ephesians 2, if you have your Bible, verses 4 again, and then this new wild, crazy thought that I want you to have, and I think it'll give you a deeper understanding give you theological roots here that will be able to really withstand things of assaults on your theology and understanding of God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Why are we here today? Because God's rich in mercy. Not because I'm a good guy. I'm a terrible guy. I was a terrible guy. I am becoming a better guy because Jesus is beginning to take over my life. And in that way, I become better in that he lives in me. But he was rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And that will be a refrain that we continue to repeat here this morning. And raised us up with him and seated us within heavenly places in Christ. We talked about that last week. So that, now this should grab your attention. Why are we seated in heavenly places? Why are all these things true? So that, so that what? Why all this? In the ages to come, he, God, might show the surpassing riches 
of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's also helpful. The language gets a little hard here in the Greek. Go to the New Living Translation with me for a second and let me read the same verse 7 out of the New Living. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ. Okay, now let me break that down for you. So that in all the ages to come, the glory might point back to the creator of the universe. He's going to demonstrate in you. Now, let me give you an example. Dwayne McNett, come up here, please, if you wouldn't mind, mind my friend. Dwayne McNett. Unbeknownst to Dwayne McNett. Dwayne McNett is now coming up. Everybody welcome Dwayne McNett. So now what I'm going to tell you about Dwayne is Dwayne comes up. Dwayne is the finest golfer in the world. He's the finest golfer. There is not a better golfer in the world than Dwayne McNett. Tiger Woods pales by comparison. Rory McIlroy, his drives are weak, impotent. Dwayne McNett, however, is the finest golfer. I'm telling you, Dwayne is the finest golfer in the world. Now, are you, uh, are you excited about this information, Dwayne, that you're the finest golfer in the world? You're very excited, he says. Yes, he's excited to know. Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus had nothing over that. Now, if I was to tell you that, first of all, you'd go, wait a minute. Wait a minute, who is this guy? Now, now we, granted, we live in Palm Springs, California Valley here, the Coachella Valley, and we have a lot of former tour players. So maybe somebody slipped under your radar screen. I mean, you know the Nicholases and the Palmers and, the, and those kinds of guys, and they've all had residents here at various points, or, you know, certainly Palmer did, and we have many. Frank Beard lives here in the Valley, good friend, you know, multiple t- winner. Maybe Dwayne slipped under the radar. But what would be one of the first questions you'd say, well, yeah, well, you have... We kind of believe you have some integrity, Jeff, but now it's starting to be called into question. Why? Well, give us some proof that he's the best player in the world. Well, Dwayne, let me ask you, and, and then Dwayne kind of turns around and say he was to say this. He said, well, you know, I've never even played golf before. <laughs> well, I know, you say, well, this analogy is ridiculous. It's never been demonstrated that he's the finest player in the world, but what Jeff is saying that he can see into and see the... He said, if he would only apply himself, he has the internal, from mental acuity to just physical prowess to athleticism to all this stuff, he is the best. I realize he's never demonstrated it, <laughs> but Dwayne is the finest guy. Now, you would say that's ridiculous. Thank you, Dwayne. Everybody give Dwayne McNatt a nice, warm <laughs> round of applause. Now, look, you say, well, that's absurd. Let me ask you a question. How do you know? Let's read again. But God, being rich in mercy, loving, compassionate, 1 John 4, God is love. God is love. Demonstrate it. How do you you know that God's... In fact, most people are asking the opposite of that. One of the primary things, one of the primary stumbling blocks that keep people out of the kingdom from even exploring who Jesus was is all the evil that's in the world. You're telling me that you have a loving God and yet all the evil that exists in the world and they won't even go to the next level of reasoning because of that. Demonstrate that God is love. Demonstrate that Dwayne is the finest golfer in the world. Let's see some kind of demonstration. You say, well, I, I, don't, know if we, I don't know if we can show some demonstration of this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. 
excuse me, Ephesians chapter 3, pardon me, pardon me, Ephesians chapter 3. Second service today, I got to get back in the role, I got to get back in the routine here. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, 8, to me, the very least of the saints, here's Paul speaking, notice his language here, the very least of the saints, he recognizes where he's come from, a religion, yes, but relationship, no way. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, catch this, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was in in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, first of all, this is incredibly mysterious. It's been a mystery since all the begin before the foundations. God was going to have to take on human flesh, come down and die. And not only for Abraham and his physical descendants, that which we would call Israel, but the Gentiles are going to be included in this? This is just a mystery that's been hidden from the foundations. But in order that God might demonstrate, show the mystery which demonstrates his love and mercy... He's going to demonstrate to whom here? The authorities and powers that exist in heavenly places. You've got to realize that we're not the only creation on the planet. I mean, uh, in the cosmos. First of all, that we know of, there's the angelic realm. If we read and interpret Revelation 12, for instance, to mean that a third of the angels fell in Satan's ridiculous coup, then we could say, well, when they fell, they're part of the created order. They didn't understand this mystery. Not well enough, obviously. And that they were actually working right into the hands of the Creator. And then also, even the angelic realm. Paul says elsewhere that they long to look into some of the things that you can see. But they they have a hard time uh, understanding the fullness of all all these things. So God's going to demonstrate His love, mercy, and grace for all of eternity to all the authorities in heavenly places. Through not only Jesus, but through His church. You want to see what I'm like? Let me just show you Jeff Cranford before. He was an idiot. I mean, God loves me, but I mean, sometimes he tells it like it is. He was an idiot. He chased his own, he, he chased his own tail for most of his life. He, he, he went down all the wrong roads. He chose to neglect me in his life. He chose to turn the other way when I would try to discipline him. Uh, he, he made every bad decision there was. And so when he was dead, completely spiritually dead in his transgressions, I came down and let me show you the demonstration of my rich levels of mercy and love and grace. And that while he was dead, and then here he is. Now, I am not fully yet someone that I would say, oh, yeah, but I'm already somebody that should be demonstrating the the love and the mercy of God in my life. I have to be. Now, one day fully I will be. Because I'll have a restored mind completely. I have the mind of Christ now, but I'll be fully restored. I won't have any more of me. I'll have all of Christ and who he originally intended me to be, as will you. We'll see him face to face, the Bible says, and become like him, which is the very purpose for which you're on the earth, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. These are powerful things. There's coming a day when Satan, little, his little coup will look ridiculous, and it'll be proved through the church. And Jesus. Is that cool? I mean, I want to see that. Now, Paul uses this similar language too. But before we look at that, I want to, I want to share something else to you. Why is this so important? Go to Romans chapter 2. Why is, P, why is the, that 
I, let's take the Coachella Valley here, okay? So we live in this kind of Hollywood-esque place called the Coachella Valley. The Frank, you know, like I said, Frank Sinatra's world, you know, the Rack Pat, pretty much all those guys are gone, but the Rack Pat and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is the land that we live in. How are they ever going to know anything about the kindness of God here in this valley? How are they going to know? Well, Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you, not, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is what leads people to change their mind or repent, turn the other way, change their mind about how they think about reality? How is the world going to repent, change their mind? Through the kindness of God. And there are two ways that the kindness of God is presented to the world. Number one, through His Word, the gospel. It's a demonstration of the mercy, the rich mercy of God and the grace of God. But secondly, it's demonstrated through the church or should be being demonstrated through the church. Are people, do people look at your life and go, you know what, it's, maybe there is a God you know, Bob is so kind or so, or, or Annette is so, she's so special. And she says she has a relationship with God and she, she demonstrates love and kindness and joy. And I'll never forget, I had a friend uh, and he's, passed, he's recently passed, uh, but a guy named Dennis Kaufman who I love and his wife's still living in Maryland and he's a Jewish man and he he'd said his testimony is that he tried everything, transcendental meditation. He tried every occult practice. He, he was searching for God high and low. And you know what led him to Christ? Ultimately, he had a neighbor and their house burned to the ground. And he saw their response to it. They were still kind. They were still loving. They were still compassionate. And he didn't understand. He said, they have something I don't know. What happened through that couple, whether they ever knew it or not? I don't know that they ever knew that he ended up coming to Jesus. But he said, I saw the kindness of God in them. And it led him to change his mind about who Jesus was and embrace Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Changed his life. And then other lives as a function of that. Now, how is the world going to see the kindness and compassion of God? Through you. Listen to the language of Paul, 2 Thessalonians. He writes this in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to Paul's language. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Each one of us have a calling. You may not think that, or you may just kind of try to throw a few pennies in the plate or something like that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we each have a calling in Christ. And he says, and that our God would count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith and power. And then he says this, so that, why? Why is it important that God do that in you? So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. Now, what does glorified mean? Sounds, you know, it sounds kind of like archaic word sometimes. No, glorified just means, look, this is awesome. To be lifted up and say, now that is worthy of praise. That's glorifying somebody where glory comes to that person 
you know, what can happen very often in religion is because we, the way we do church sometimes, we don't get into small groups and use Right Now Media and have all this where people are actually being discipled. They think of it more in terms of the Church of the Red Doors about Jeff or Paul or somebody and it's a person. And in some ways, it's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's a great teacher. Look, if the glory comes to me, it cannot come to me. If I'm doing my job, as Paul says, he, that I should be doing, someone should look at me and not go, oh, look at Jeff. What they should do is they should look at me and go, oh, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If we've done our job as a church, people look at Church of the Red Door and not say, oh, Church of the Red Door is a fantastic church. They'll say, Church of the Red Door, oh, yeah, Jesus. And they'll glo- he'll be glorified in us individually and in us collectively. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is powerful. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. He's telling this young guy, Timothy, he goes, I didn't deserve anything. And yet somehow God put me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, he was violent against the gospel. He was religious, but he was violently against the gospel. And in fact, involved, as we know, on the road to Damascus in rounding some of these Jewish men and women up who believed in Jesus and trying to drag them back to Jerusalem. He said, yet I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. I know I have religious pedigree here, but I consider that all nonsense, rubbish, compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus putting Philippians, his letter to the Philippians in there. He says, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that, oh, we have another so that. Always look at the so that. So that in me, as the foremost knucklehead, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. And he docks, you know, finishes with his doxology. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just, he just breaks out into this refrain. What's the point? He's saying, so that Christ might be demonstrated. The attributes of the creator of the universe must be demonstrated through me. And now us collectively as the church, to whom is it being demonstrated? powers and authorities that we don't have any concept of, angelic realm, authorities, and, and, but most, too, very importantly, people that are spiritually dead. Oh, those are the attributes of God. That is, maybe God could love me. Maybe God could love, maybe God, yes, God loves you. Demonstrate it. Well, we just get a line here at Church of the Red Door and march people up and say, here's my personal testimony. Jesus changed my life. I was lost and now I've been found. Now, is that powerful or what? So that springboards us into this next section, which is many of you, I'm sure, have memorized. It should be. I mean, this is refrigerator verse stuff, man. This is Romans 10, 9, and 10. This is, this is John 3, 16. I mean, this is top three verses of all time because of the simplicity of its explanation in describing the gospel. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. No, by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's not just God's grace and now we're all saved. It's God's grace through your reaction to it, which is faith. You bring nothing to the party other than I believe. I don't know why I believe. You may have even walked in here today and said, I didn't believe, but now I believe. Or you're listening five years down the road on YouTube or somewhere or, or a podcast or whatever, and you're driving down the road and you said, I don't know why, but I'm hearing these words. I didn't believe, and now I believe. And I react in faith. You're saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. Why? Why shouldn't we be? It's a gift of God. It's a gift. It is a gift, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now, are you saved? Let's get this clear. We say it over and over, but let's just every week you need to know, are you saved by what you do? How much you bring to the party? How nice you are? How many, how many dollars you give away? How many things you lay down in your life? What a good person you are? How you tip the valet? Whatever it is that you perceive a good person to be, how are you saved? It's a free gift. You just receive it. You are saved by grace through faith. You're saved by grace through faith. You're saved by grace for works. Now, if you get those reversed, you have pretty much every other religion on the face of the planet. If you do this and this and this and this and this and pay this much and do that, and, and men will always organize, they will always institutionalize, they will always get some set of rules. It also gives them, empowers them, gives them power, gives them authority so that they can hold sway over people. That's religion. No, this is a free gift given to, through the cosmos, through the creator, through Jesus. Here's the gift. Now that you're saved, yes, you're created as his workmanship. Now, why are we in such dire straits? Why, do we, why does it have to be by grace? You know, some people have seen grace at, at Christ, uh, excuse me, it's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, Christ's God's riches, excuse me, at Christ's expense. It was a heavy, heavy price that was paid by Jesus. It was not free. It's free to you, but it was not free to God. And once we understand that, we receive that. Now, why, are we, why did it have to be by grace? Let me give you one little sidebar note here. You know, the whole, and again, this Kavanaugh uh, appointment to the Supreme Court recently it's challenging. I have no idea. I mean, I, you know, you want to believe one thing. She gave some incredibly uh, uh, valiant testimony, and I, I felt deeply for her. He gave some very impassioned response. I have no idea. I don't know what happened. I don't know that, I don't know that we'll ever know really what happened there. But our culture struggles so much with a narrative of redemption because they don't have one. See, our culture doesn't know what it's crying for, but you know what our culture is crying for? They're crying out for a narrative of redemption because right now the secular culture, you are whatever your worst act has been in your life. It doesn't matter if you did it when you were 10 or whether you did it five minutes ago. You are defined by your worst action in life. And let me ask you this. Who could stand under the scrutiny of that kind of life? that kind of judgment. So we hide, desperately hide our worst acts so that we can in some ways come to church and be smiling everything else. So that's the, that's the narrative of the culture. The na what the culture does not understand is that they are crying out for the gospel, that you don't have to be defined by your worst act. You can be defined by his great act on your behalf who died for all of your acts, whether they were the worst or whether they were in some...
category above. This is crucial. We don't have, like I said, that's why we have the most incredible news to take into a culture. Hey, we have the narrative of redemption. You can try to do it your own. Say, hey, we're good people. We'll do it on our own. We'll be obedient. I want to take you back to Exodus and just show you how how absolutely futile this was for the nation of Israel. Uh, the Hebrews at this point, is, as they're coming out of, the na- uh, out of slavery and Egypt, listen to the story. Very, very interesting. Exodus chapter 24, and it'll give you a sense of we are hopeless. We are hopeless. We'll see that in the verses next week. You are hopeless and without God in the world. Verse 1. Then he, Moses, he said to Moses, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and, and, and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Why? No man can see God and live. You do not realize who you're dealing with. We've talked a lot about that in here. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Be careful, Moses, you come up, but do not let the people come up, because if they get near me, they will implode. They have no chance to be in my presence. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. What's he talking about? He'd given them the law. And all the people answered with one voice and said, at all the words which the Lord has spoken, we'll do it. We're going to be good people. We're going to obey all the rules. We're going to be fantastic. You give us these rules, we're going to live by them. We can do it. You know, Phil Knight tells us in advance, just do it. You can do it. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Intuitively, they knew, we're going to really give it to good old college try. We're really going to work hard at doing this, but deeply down they knew, but we're going to still need some sacrifices here. So let's kill some animals and get some blood working here, you know. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now get, this is about to be a blood covenant oath between the people of Israel and their God. Are you ready? And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so he went out on this group, and he said, maybe two million strong. And he took the blood, and he just began to splash it all over the people, sprinkle it all over the people. This is the covenant. You, you've said, I will, we will do it. We will be obedient. We're going to be good people. We're going to work hard, be very religious, very active. Very concerned about what our God is concerned about. How long did that last? How long would it last for you? Would you make it out of the parking lot? Somebody pulled in front of me. Mm. Well, let's, let's go to long. Jeff went long in the sermon. Arrgh. Well, I was leaving and I, I said hi to her and she didn't remember my name. I've, I've told her my name four times and she still cannot remember my name. Arrgh. I mean... At what point? And that's why Jesus used the law to show people their ineptitude. I've never committed adultery. Have you looked upon a woman to lust? You're guilty of adultery. I've never killed anybody. I, the, the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. 
Have you even called someone a fool? You're guilty of murder. Those are Jesus' words. That's why it has to be grace. It has to be grace. One thing this says is it doesn't matter. It has to be grace. It can only be a gift. As hard as you might work, as hard as you might work, you're still not good enough. That's the narrative. That's the Bible. And you know what? You want that to be true. You are desperate for that to be true. And you know what? Even though your neighbor says, I don't believe in God, deep down, they're desperate for a narrative of redemption. It's your task to demonstrate the love and the kindness of God that leads them to their change of mind and maybe even come here for the first time or go to one of your groups in your neighborhood or start a little something and just say, we're going to have a little Bible study and invite your friends and be kind and loving. Let them see the love and passion demonstrated in their lives. Now, and as we start to wind this down here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, this is really wild and it's important to see. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Colossae. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. We've seen that over and over. We've seen it in Ephesians. Now we see it in Colossians. How, how did you come to Christ? Well, I was really worked hard at it. And I figured, no, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. That's why it takes God to reach down. He says, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. I don't know. if you, Can you skip over that? Or should we just all get down on our knees and begin to worship? Having forgiven us most of our transgressions. No, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having, now catch this, having canceled out. Now, this is important. Oh, I've sinned. You Christians are always thinking about sinning and this and that. We're not so worried about that. We try to live free, you know, and we're, you know, we're our sexual identity and everything. We're just going to live free, man. We're going to free. How did that work in the 60s? It's not going to work in the 21st century either. He says, no, but here's what Christ did. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. This book has decrees that are so set against you, you have no idea. Well, just try to be a good guy and read a little Bible every once in a while. No, no, no. This book is full of decrees that say, Jeff Cranford, you are, you are vastly separated from a holy God. You do not know the peril that you live in. The wrath of God is upon you. Don't preach that in the 21st century. That's not going to draw people to church at the red door. That's what the Bible says. And then that was the decree set against me, and it was hostile to me and us. And he says, but he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So all all these laws that said Jeff deserves to be stoned, Jeff deserves to be separate from God, Jeff deserves to be, were nailed to the cross right here and just... Nailed up with Jesus, and now they're no longer hostile to me in Christ. Is that good news or not? And then he says this, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So what looked like the ultimate defeat with Jesus on the cross (laughs) was the ultimate triumph. Because he nailed the ordinances that were hostile to us onto that tree so that we might be part of the family. But no Don Carleone family, a loving, sacrificial, glorious family called the church. Now that's family protection, my friends. That is family protection. So as we close out this last verse, and it will be done through 1 through 10, Ephesians 2.10 simply says this, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. You're saved by grace, for good works. It's 
shorten it a little. We're his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. I'm walking prayerfully, and I don't do it perfectly, and I fail in many ways, but I'm doing, through the power of the Holy Spirit, walking out a calling that I have. So you're walking out a calling, CJ's walking out a calling, Craig's walking out a calling, Kelly and Kathy are walking out a calling, Amy and Colleen are walking out a calling. We're, we're, well, or we either walking it out or we're not. Now, what does that word workmanship even mean? It's actually etymologically where we get our word poem. It's poema in the Greek. You're a poem being written by God. You're poetry, man. You say, well, you know, I, I don't know about that. If you're walking out your calling and you're saved by grace through faith, God's actually writing a story, a beautifully wonderful poem of your life. What will that poem look like? You know, this is, I I love this. Listen to Kent Hughes on this idea of workmanship. He says, in Christ we're of untold worth. He said, this great truth may be hard to actually take hold of as we exist in frail human bodies carried along by the rush of all these modern day excesses and busyness. Some of us have had bad things, excuse me, some of us have had things happen which make us doubt our worth. But we're his workmanship, his work of art. Moreover, we are in process. Philippians 1.6 says, Paul says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will see it to its full end or its completion. Michelangelo was once asked what he was doing as he chipped away at a shapeless rock. Right? And he replied, I'm liberating an angel from the stone. I love that. That's what God's doing with us. We're, we're in the hands of the great maker, the ultimate sculptor who created the universe out of nothing. And he has never yet thrown away a rock on which he has begun a masterwork. His tools are Christ and the Holy Spirit, his word and the preaching of the word. If you have ears to hear this morning, this is a beautiful work. God is chipping away through the preaching of the word and creating and releasing his poem out of this great rock, which is your life. Often God's spirit uses difficult circumstances or difficult people to sculpt our character into his masterpieces, conform to the image of his son. In Christ, we are of untold worth. And then, you know, there's a, there's a gal who became a paraplegic, and she's a quadriplegic, actually, excuse me, uh, Joni Erickson Tata. Some of you have probably heard of her. And she says she became a quadriplegic after a tra- tragic accident and describes herself as God's poema, his poem. In her book, A Place of Healing, writing, God has a plan and a purpose for my time on the earth. He's the master artist or sculptor, and he is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. Now listen to this. As a quadriplegic, what of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal me in every physical affliction? If I'm his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to trim line number two and brighten up lines three and five. They're just a little bit too dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? Now, let me tell you something. Those are grace-filled words coming from anybody, but especially a woman who's a quadriplegic. Do I have the right over the Lord? 
you know, are we going to pray for healing at Church of the Red Door? Yes, we will. Have we seen people healed at Church of the Red Door? Yes, we have. Have we seen people prayed for and not healed yet? Yes. Have, or will we ever pray for people who will never in this life be healed of the malady in which they are trying to be healed from, from the Lord? Probably so. Yes. Does that indict God in any way? Or will he use that in sculpting you? I'm telling you he will. Now that means something to me. His workmanship? So the question is, who's writing the script in your life? First service they ask if, when this, uh, oh, it's not up yet. But um, we had a little, where's that skull? There we go. And people, people kind of freaked out about it. What did that mean? I don't know, and I didn't explain it very well. I didn't explain it at all. I'm saying, is, is, the, <laughs> is the prince of the power of the air, which is what, what we learned in Ephesians 2, is he writing the script of your life? That's not a Bible. It's just a, the script of your life. Is he writing the script of your life? Is the prince of the power of the air writing the script of your life? Or is the crea- have you given the creator of the universe access through blessing, trial, and all of the above to do the work in you as a potter molds the clay, as a sculptor molds the rock, as a poem writes, as a poet writes the poem? Have you given him access and trust him even when it doesn't look like he's trustworthy? That's the question. Is Jesus the king? He is right over me. I'm not my own. If he chooses to take my life tomorrow or give me another 30 years, his choice. But am I accomplishing the task? Do I recognize myself? Do I recognize that I am where his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, prepared for me before the foundations of the earth? Or do I think, or am I still part of the world? I just want to have a good life. I just want to, you know, be relaxed. And I want to go on vacations. And I want to play golf. And, and all that other stuff can just go to the side. You know, I'll go to church. I mean, I want to be saved and everything. Or do you see yourself as a poem being written by God? I'm just asking you. If you see yourself as a poem, you will take, you'll go from here in your spiritual journey. And you'll go like that. It'll take you to a whole another place. God's workmanship. And it never ends. Let's watch this. This is a Right Now Media little two-minute deal here, but I think it'll give you a perspective on the brevity of time that we're here on earth and that God is saving you and protecting your soul. may not look like he's protecting your body at all times, but he's protecting your soul. Let's watch, and I'll close in prayer.